to Prajna Sparks, a podcast where we listen to a Dharma talk, contemplate with our minds and in our hearts, and engage in guided meditation. In this episode, we continue our series on the four thoughts that reorient the mind to Dharma with the fourth of those four thoughts, namely, the defects of samsara. Every episode of Prajna Sparks takes hours to plan, record, and edit. We ask that you give us a little bit of your time today to subscribe and review our podcast. Alongside your own practice, this is the best possible offering as it helps the Dharma reach new listeners. The Sadhana for the Mahamudra Nundro Practice by the Ninth Karmapa, Wanchuk Dorje, has led our contemplations of the four thoughts that reorient the mind to this point. So let's see what it has to say about the defects of samsara. Fourth, the places, friends, comforts, and possessions of samsara constantly torment me through the three kinds of suffering, like the feast of the executioner on the way to the gallows. Cutting through attachment, I shall strive to accomplish enlightenment. Goodness gracious, that sounds depressing. What do we make out of this? This is where we encounter the Buddha's teachings on dukkha, or suffering, as it's typically translated. And these are very challenging teachings. We don't consider absolutely everything in our lives as painful. And when we hear that everything in samsara is suffering, that gets our backs up, doesn't it? How can the love I feel for my family, for my pets, for my friends, the enjoyment I take in nature, or art, creativity, or whatever it may be, be suffering? Well, of course, part of it has to do with the translation. Suffering doesn't begin to encompass everything that dukkha is talking about. This phrase talks about three kinds of suffering, three kinds of dukkha, only one of which we would identify as suffering per se. The first of the three kinds of suffering is obvious suffering. This is what we think of as suffering, as pain, as discontent, as unpleasantness, all of the things that we just don't like. This is obvious suffering. And it's only one of the three kinds of dukkha that the Buddha is pointing to in our lives. The second is actually what we think of as pleasant experiences. The things we enjoy, comforts, hanging out with friends, going to the movies, entertainment, our nice cozy home, whatever it might be. Now the Buddha is not saying, you're a fool, you think it's pleasant, but it's actually pain. Not at all. The Buddha is saying, yes, these are pleasant things, but are they the source of the deep, abiding, unalloyed joy that we all seek? Are they merely fleeting pleasures that we seek comfort in, islands in a storm of unease and discontent? If we call these Pleasant experiences, pleasant compared to what? Compared to suffering? Compared to pain? 
loss, grief? Is that our definition of pleasant? Not suffering in an obvious way? In other words, are these a kind of shifting suffering? A moment of respite from hunger with a lovely meal? From loneliness due to being with friends and family and so forth? Now, that's not to say that those moments aren't pleasant. But what the Buddha is pointing out is our aspirations are much higher than that. Our aspirations are for happiness, joy, comfort, love that never stops, that doesn't shift into pain or discontent again. This is what we want. This is what all beings want. And it's the very nature of our mind to abide in the unceasing bliss of contentment that never falters, that continues in its myriad of expressions, but never ever descends to pain, loss, grief, and the like. In other words, in comparison to this blissful state of our mind, which is our true nature, even the pleasures that we experience fall short As a matter of fact, part of what makes them pleasures is that they mirror, they echo the lasting bliss that we seek, that we actually are. This is the second of the three kinds of dukkha, that even pleasant experiences of samsara are tainted because we cannot control their occurring, their staying, and their power. Then the third kind of dukkha is much more universal. It's the powerlessness to have things be just as we like. Most of us listening to this podcast have sufficient privilege and ability to affect our lives that we might fool ourselves into thinking that we have control over our lives. We do have very strong influence on many aspects of our life. But this third kind of dukkha is saying, nowhere do you have unfettered power over whether, for example, you remain healthy or fall ill, stay young, vital, and strong, or age, continue to live in this youthful, healthy way, or deteriorate and eventually die. We have no control over whether people like us or do not like us, whether they say nice things or bad things, whether we keep our jobs and our homes and our friends and our loved ones or lose them and so forth. This is the third kind of dukkha, the universal suffering that permeates samsara. So that brings us to the second point. What is this samsara that we're talking about? We dedicated an entire episode early in the Prajna Sparks podcast to what is samsara. But in essence, the key thing to remember about samsara from the perspective of the Kagyu lineage of Tibetan Buddhism is that it is not a place. Rather, it is the vast and deep set of misconceptions that influence how we experience place, time, people and so forth. Samsara is misperception. 
So there is never going to be a true way of interacting with people, places, time, and situations as long as this misperception holds. We will always be interacting with things as something other than they are. And that in and of itself is also dukkha, unfulfilling. So when the verse says that samsaric experiences are like the feast of the executioner on the way to the gallows, this is a really intense image. But basically, what it is saying is that when we are under the hold of misperception, our lives are heading closer and closer to death. And in the meantime, we are enjoying this and that, striving to get more of what we're attached to and to get away from what we're averse to, doing whatever it takes, driven by attachment, aversion, or possibly even apathy, without any thought of what those actions will mean for us. This does not mean we don't get to stop and smell the roses or enjoy life. What it is saying is, do you think that's enough for you? Or do you want an understanding of your mind that allows you to start taking down those veils of misperception so that you interact with things as they are, so that your actions are aligned with the true nature of things, meaning that the consequences of those actions never creating more samsaric misperception. Rather, these consequences are ones that bring us inspiration, joy, and progressively disintegrate those veils of misunderstanding that prevent us from interacting with the places, the people, the things, and our very own hearts just the way they are. When we hold on to loved ones or possessions, our youth, our career, all of the things that we think of as sources of lasting happiness, as though they were actually lasting and sources of genuine happiness, we're setting ourselves up for unhappiness. Things are impermanent, as we saw in the second of the thoughts that reorient the mind to Dharma. We can enjoy our loved ones, our pleasures of this life, if we recognize we only have the privilege of being with them for a time. It's poignant, but realistic. If we recognize that they are not sources of genuine happiness, in the sense of happiness that doesn't falter, that continues unabated, without being influenced by external circumstances, we can appreciate them for the pleasures that they do bring to us for the joys that they make available, and not hold out for a hope that is unreasonable to expect others and inanimate objects to rise to. In other words, hold the tenderness of how things really are in our hearts so that we can behave with the respect, the love, and the care that resonates with that understanding rather than yearn for things in a way that does not match their characteristics, doing anything it takes to get that job, that partner, that car, 
that house thinking that, wow, once that's done, I'll be happy. How many times have you thought that? How many times has it worked? This is the thing. Samsara fools us into just one more thing and you've got it made. And all of the things we do to pin that down just send us whirling deeper into those cycles of attachment, aversion, and delusion that lead us to any of the three kinds of suffering. Samsara is tragic. This contemplation is pointing us to the unequaled bliss of being able to interact with all things precisely as they are, without judging or changing, and without anxiety, stress, or grief. It is being as we are, with all things as they are. This is what it means to cut through attachment, attachment to how we want things, aversion to what we don't want, and so forth, so that we are able to accomplish the full and complete enlightenment of Buddhahood, the true nature of our mind, beyond good and bad, up and down, black and white, noble or evil. Rather, we are able to have the dynamic equanimity that has the capacity to stay with what is, as it is, from the very depths of our hearts, for the sake of ourselves and all that lives. Here are a few seeds for contemplation as you take these thoughts into your day. When you are enjoying a good meal, time with friends, a nice outing, whatever it may be, allow yourself to touch into the tenderness of both enjoying this time and feeling that it cannot last, that bittersweet edge that sometimes actually prompts us to enjoy life all the more. Because no moment is ever repeated in exactly the same way. Each is unique and special. At the same time, allow yourself to connect with that poignant yearning for the joy, the love, the friendship, the comfort, the safety you seek never to end. Aspire that this may be the case for you and all beings, that our true nature, unalloyed, blissful ease, never interrupted by suffering and never affected by powerlessness, may be right in our hands. This is what the Buddha is offering us. It's up to us to make it happen. This is Yeshe and Zopa for Prajna Sparks. Be sure to join us every month for fresh episodes. Stay tuned now for a guided meditation with Lama Zopa. Shivni is our Tibetan singing bowl artist. Thanks for the generosity of giving us some time out of your day to like, subscribe, share, and review Prajna Sparks. It really does help us to spread the gift of Dharma to new listeners. If you have any questions, contact us via email, Instagram, or Facebook. Check the episode notes for those links and for more resources on today's topic. 
Visit us on the web at prajnafire.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Prajna Sparks. Thank you for listening. May all beings benefit. Hello, friends, fellow seekers of the way. Welcome to the meditation on the shortcomings of samsara. To begin with, as we usually do, let's take a few moments to ground, arrive in the present moment, become aware of our posture, of our physical energy, of this unique point in time that we find ourselves in, right here and right now. Slowing down and taking in just what it is to be alive, to be orienting towards meditation in this moment, allowing any thoughts, busyness, recollections of the past, anticipations of the future, whatever it might be, just to fade into the background a little and to arrive here and now in this present moment. Having taken our seats in this way, let's engage in a bit of tranquility meditation, shamatha, to settle and clarify mind. Tranquility meditation is the practice of one-pointed focus, developing its strength. So we use the meditation object, whether it be the breath or whatever it might be, to hone our attention so that we become aware of any minute wanderings away from the object, becoming sharp, clear, one-pointed, not too tense, not too loose. Let's practice like that for a couple of minutes. In this calm, clear, settled state of mind, turn attention to contemplating the defects of samsara. One rendering of the traditional contemplation that we base our meditation on goes like this. The places, friends, comforts, and possessions of samsara constantly torment us through the three kinds of suffering, like the feast offered by the executioner on the way to the gallows. Cutting through attachment, I shall strive to accomplish enlightenment. As we engage in the experiential analysis, keeping our mind focused one-pointedly, in this arena of contemplating how the places, friends, comforts, and possessions continually trouble us through the three kinds of dukkha, discontent. We examine in our own experience what this is talking about. Anytime we encounter 
a sense of clarity, a sense of knowing, an aha moment. Perhaps it's an intellectual aha moment. Perhaps it's an emotional aha moment. Whatever the case may be, we stop our analysis and rest one-pointedly in that experience. As it fades, we again return to the experiential analysis. In this way, alternating, we integrate these teachings deeply. How long have I, in this life, been chasing after places, friends, comforts, possessions that I think are going to satisfy me, that are going to please me. And yet, even with all the immense effort I've put in in this life, still there's that continual sense of discontent. Even in our happiness, even in our experiences of pleasure, we can tap into that feeling, that worry of the experience slipping through our fingers, of it being out of our control, even as we're enjoying it. Obvious suffering, of course, needs no pointing out. We all know what that's like. How unpleasant, sometimes unbearable, that is. And the all-pervasive suffering, that lack of freedom to get what we want and just remain in an unchanging state of the bliss that we yearn for, is heartbreaking when we allow ourselves to go into it. Allow yourself now to examine how it is that the places, friends, comforts, and possessions of samsara constantly torment you through these three kinds of dukkha, discontent. How it is that they're like a feast offered by your executioner as he's dragging you off to the gallows. How much enjoyment is actually there when we become cognizant of our situation, of the reality? This is a sobering thought. If we expand our view and take into consideration countless previous lives, the enormity of what is being pointed out here is vast, overwhelming almost. To think how many lifetimes 
Have I toiled, sweated, ached, yearned, been disappointed and thrilled, chasing after people, places, possessions, pleasures? And yet, even with those mountains of effort, oceans of sweat that I've expended, what do I have to show for it? What is the meaning that lasts? Allow yourself to go deep into this contemplation, into this experiential analysis, looking at the truth of it in your own life. The question that naturally comes up for many of us when we allow ourselves to tap into this is, what is meaningful? Given that even these pleasures and pleasant things of this life that I strive for are continually tormenting me, then what is meaningful to pursue? What is actually going to give me my heart's desire? The text here gives us an answer. Not one that we have to adopt, but one that we look into, see its truth for ourselves. Cutting through attachment, I shall strive to accomplish enlightenment. What is it that can last? What is it that can give us that unconquerable bliss that we so deeply yearn for? It is our very innate nature, Buddhahood, the nature of our own heart minds. If we reveal this through the path, we will attain the state of unassailable supreme bliss that's perfectly fine with whatever occurs. Inquiring experientially in this way, we tap into our natural drive for what is meaningful. We inform ourselves and live life, pursue the path with a little less dust in our eyes. Thank you so much for your practice and all that you do. Please join me now in sharing whatever goodness has come of this listening, contemplating, and meditating, and share it freely with all beings who also yearn, one-pointedly, day and night, for unassailable bliss, the true nature, Buddhahood.